you would take your Bibles out and turn to Philippians chapter 3. On New Year's Day today, we are taking the opportunity to preach a New Year's sermon. So we're going to a great text that I'm excited to look at with you. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read um, a bigger chunk of it, um, but really the sermon itself will focus on verse 12. So as we read this bigger chunk, think of verse 12 within its context so it'll help us study it together. We'll start in Philippians 3, verse 2. Follow along as I read. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Uh, Children, you can be dismissed, and we can go ahead and be seated. I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox for myself today. Um, I don't like causing us to question our English translations. That's not a healthy habit I like to instill in all of us. We have really good translations of Scripture. But as I was studying through verse 12, I just kept bumping up against the ESV's translation here. Um, So what I've decided to do and take this as a little bit goofy, but hopefully helpful as we work through the passage, I have put forward a new Emmanuel version for us. 
And I don't claim that this is necessarily better. It's just more wooden. I think there's some things in this, in this, in this uh, verse here for us to see that Paul is trying to draw out for us. And quite frankly, I don't understand why translators obscure some of this stuff. But they're trying to create an enduring translation. I'll give them a lot of credit. Um, so let me reread verse 12 in, in my feeble attempt at a translation and hopefully draw across some of the things that will help establish um, our task today. So verse 12 of the New Emmanuel Version. Not that I have already taken hold of this or have already been perfected, but I strive that I might take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. There is some differences there, is there not? Uh, You'll notice the repetition of that statement, take hold. Paul hasn't already taken hold of something, but he's striving to take hold of it because Christ has taken hold of him. For this, he's striving to take hold of it for the, the fact that Christ took hold of him for that purpose. So Christ is taking hold, so Paul wants to take hold. That's the, that's the repetition I really want to draw out for you. You can see the similar movement in the ESV, but I think it just needs to be drawn out more explicitly. It's the same verb being used in all three instances. Another thing to notice about this silly translation of mine is, is the difference in the word because. Look back at the ESV. Um, it says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And the more I work on it, I think I understand what they're trying to get across with that and how that fits with the Greek. But the other translations, the New King James, the NASB, uh, the NET, several other translations I looked at all brought across what I'm trying to bring across here in my little translation. And that is... Um, I strive that I may take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's talking about Christ's intention. Not not what Christ has done as a motivator for us, but why is Christ doing what he's doing? What is his intention in his work? That drives us to act. Paul is pressing on. He's striving after something. His life is characterized by a dominant, all-pervasive pursuit. Uh, the Greek word there, it's literally the word persecute. It's translated as persecute most often. It's the word to hunt after something, to seek after it, to persecute. It's the same word Paul used earlier in the passage to describe his previous life. He was a persecutor of the church. He was one who hunted after and sought after those in Christ. He was dominated by a previous passion to see Christ done away with and his people done away with. And now he is dominated by a new passion, an all-pervasive pursuit, a hunt. My goal today in going to this passage is to focus and inflame the same passion, the same hunt, the same pervasive pursuit that we would have a resolve that is rightly tuned and fiery. What is that resolve that we're aiming at? Christ-like perfection. Christ-like perfection. And so, to work through this passage in verse 12 today, we're going to see two truths that help to focus and inflame 
that pursuit of Christ-like perfection. So that's my goal today, is to draw out these two truths. Paul had an all-pervasive pursuit to arrive at Christ-likeness. And so my title, Resurrection Resolve, is really hinting at what I'm trying to get at. There is a new life to be brought to bear, and we should pursue it with everything we have. So, two truths. First truth, let's look at it in, in chapter 12, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 12, the first statement there. The first truth here that should focus and inflame our pursuit of Christ-like perfection is, in Christ, you are not yet perfect. In Christ, you and I are not yet perfect. Paul says, not that I have already taken hold of this or have already been perfected. Paul sees himself lacking something, which should cause us a moment of pause. If anybody is going to lack something, it shouldn't be Paul, right? He is the one who has attained. He is our, the one we are trying to follow. He's the one later in this passage we should be imitating, And yet Paul sees himself lacking something. And he uses the word here, perfection, completeness, final form. He has not yet arrived. That may seem like a normal statement for some of you, but there's two really dangerous errors that Paul's confession here guards us against. The first really dangerous error that Paul's confession here guards us against is self-righteousness. This is the error that dominates our culture. It's the be a better version of yourself. Become a better you. Growth mindset. Become who you think you should be. We see this in everything, right? We see this in all of the New Year's resolutions that are going to top the charts. I looked at some of the most prevalent New Year's resolutions, and we've got things like exercise more, eat better, uh, take on a new hobby, rest more. It's all about becoming a better version of yourself. It is self-righteousness. It's being caught on a hamster wheel of self-improvement. You're just running and running and running and you're never getting anywhere. Maybe you feel like you're stuck there. Like you just come to this place every New Year's where you're like, I haven't followed through on what I wanted to become. There's all these standards that I'm reading about or hearing or seeing in other people, and I just feel like I'm running and running and running. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm not on a hamster wheel. Man, you should see how much I have improved. I'm really becoming something. Like, you should see my portfolio. It has grown. You should see my skill set. It is way better. You should see me compared to the other guy. I am really on the path to perfection. It's self-righteousness. Maybe it's a self-righteous defeat. Maybe it's a self-righteous victory. It's self-righteousness. Paul deals with this error back in verses 4 through 6. Go back there with me in chapter 3 here. Paul himself was once on the self-righteous hamster wheel. 
Only he found, when he looked at himself, that he was actually getting pretty good at it. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He was zealous, even so much that he would devote his life in a hunt to to weed out what he would see as false teachers, Christians. As to righteousness, under the law, he was blameless. So Paul stands up in front of us as one of those guys who, um, if he's not careful, could look at himself and say, I'm really doing it. I'm not on a hamster wheel. I am flying. I'm heading. I am really improving. I am moving towards perfection. I am doing what I should be doing in this uh, self-righteous pursuit. And yet, Paul says he's still lacking. Why does he say he's still lacking in verse 12 when that's where he's been? Because he came in contact with perfection. Paul, on a road, comes in contact with the perfect one, the resurrected Christ himself. And no matter where you guys stand today, in maybe you feel like you're succeeding, you're doing pretty good at self-improvement, maybe you feel like you're really just not getting anywhere, the self-righteous pursuit has to come to an end when you come in contact with Jesus. Maybe you've experienced this um, in something that you really care about. Maybe it's a sport. You work really hard. You discipline yourself. You strive, strive, strive. You go to the gym. You do workouts. You're working hard. You want to make the team. You want to be the best. You're, you may be the best of your team in Wausau, maybe. And then you take your basketball team, Rob, you probably experienced, down to Milwaukee. <laughs> and you realize, ah, there's always a bigger fish. There's always somebody better. There's always somebody faster, stronger, attaining a greater level of superiority than I'll ever attain, and you come up against something that is closer to perfection. Well, if you're running after perfection in a self-righteous way, you will never meet it because there is a perfect one. And that's where the gospel really confronts us. It it challenges us in our self-righteousness. The the perfection has already been met. The standard has already been set. If you come in contact with the perfect one, everything else pales in comparison, and that's what happened to Paul. He counted everything else as rubbish because he came to know Jesus, the perfect one. And so this self-righteous response really hits a dead end when you come to know Jesus. But there's a, a second error here that I want to help guard us against. And it's, I think, a little bit trickier for us who confess sound doctrine. Um, It's the error of just resting in Christ. And let me be careful here. I'm going to argue that some of us get justification wrong. Or at least we apply it wrong. There's this response So we see Paul saying, I have not yet attained perfection, and there's this response in our hearts that says, but wait, you're already perfect in Christ. You're already righteous. What is this needing to attain something? What is this moving, pressing on towards something that you don't have, Paul? 
Paul himself has already established in verses, um, uh, let's just start in verse 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What happens when we come in contact with Jesus? We either crumble before his perfection or we gain him and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a self-righteous righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Paul came into contact with Jesus, he came in contact with not only the person who, who flattened all of his effort at moral attainment, but he came in contact with the person who offers him the righteousness that he can never attain. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the doctrine of justification that we need to love and cherish is that we are imperfect. We have fallen. We have fall flat before the perfection of Christ. And yet by his grace, he offers us his track record. He offers us his righteousness. He offers us his standing before God as perfect, spotless, if we would receive it by faith. That's justification. That's a beautiful doctrine for us. It, it causes us to rest from our moral grind of trying to become something better, be bettering ourselves, moral attainment, as if we're going to somehow attain a place of pleasing God or attain a place of somehow arriving. Justification allows us to rest, knowing that we're right before God, not based on what we've done, but based on what He has done. And so we can stop trying to please God in order to be made right with him. But the problem with this doctrine is that sometimes we think that that's the end of the story. As if justification was designed to be the end of Christ's work. And it's not. Justification is the doorway into right relationship with God. It's the beginning of the work Christ has for us to do. It's not a place where we sit back and we say, man, I, I'm, I'm done with this resolution stuff. I'm done with seeking to attain greater levels of perfection. I'm now right with, right with God through Christ. I am perfect before him. That in of itself should drive us, not cause complacency. And so there's this danger. As we confess our incompleteness, we, we confess that self-righteousness is not the answer. But we also confess with Paul that justification is not the end goal. Justification, being made right with God through the righteousness of Christ, is a means to an end. If you are in Christ, Christ has a greater purpose for you. What is that greater purpose? Well, our second point drives us to it. Our second point, in the second half of verse 12 here, is that your perfection is actually Christ's purpose. Christ's purpose in, bringing, in taking hold of you is that you would be made perfect. So first Paul is lacking this perfection. And now he's saying Christ is actually going after this perfection. He says in the second half of verse 12 here, But I strive that I might take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What is Paul striving for? What is he hunting? 
he's striving to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. He's striving to become what Christ intends for him to become. He's striving to experience what Christ intends for him to experience. He's striving to arrive at the place for which Christ has saved him in the first place. So why did Christ take hold of Paul? What's the goal? What's the end purpose that Christ has in his saving work for us? You could answer that many different ways, right? Just think of the different ways you can answer that. Love. Christ saved us to show his love. Christ saved us to make a people who love him. You could say worship. Christ saved us from false worship to true worship. Spirit and truth worship. You could say fellowship. He saved us back into relationship with himself, the relationship that was lost and marred and and ruined at the garden. There's more. But Paul draws us to grapple here with one beautiful way of seeing Christ's goal in his salvation of us. And he really gives it two answers, or two ways of saying the same answer. In verse 11, he says, that the answer is the resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on to say, not that I have already obtained this. There is a resurrection that Paul has yet to fully obtain, has yet to come to, the resurrection of the body. But then he says it a different way. Even one of the translations I appreciate said, uh, that is, or am already made perfect, as if it's a restatement, and I think that really is how it's playing here. He's saying, not that I've already obtained the resurrection of the body, or from the dead, or am already perfected. Two ways of saying the same thing, but think about those two ways of saying it. That seems like two different things. A, A physical, bodily resurrection from the dead, and perfection, moral, spiritual, ethical, heart-level perfection. What is the relationship between these two things? In order to understand that, we really have to dig into what is this resurrection that we look forward to? What is it that we look forward to in the resurrection? And that really comes down to how we view ourselves. Are we spiritual beings or are we physical beings? Well, we're both. We are inner and outer. We are physical and spiritual. Think about how Adam and Eve fell. How did Adam and Eve fall into sin? There was an inner component, a false love, a false worship, and there was an outer physical component. Uh, concretely disobeying God's law by taking of the fruit and eating. Think of the curse that God brought on Adam and Eve. Was it physical or spiritual? It was both. Physical, literal death as we were spiritually separated from the source of life. The, The spiritual inner man broke down in rebellion against God and the outer man broke down 
as a result in death. And so as we look forward to the redemption of Christ being fulfilled and finalized, we should be looking forward to both, should we not? A physical resurrection and a spiritual resurrection. Paul is pressing on to take hold of resurrection. He is taking hold, seeking to take hold of perfection. Both go hand in hand. So, let me ask you this. How can Paul pursue something now, present tense, that is future, promised, not going to come until the day when Christ resurrects his saints? How does that work? How can Paul pursue something now that is promised for the future? How can Paul pursue something now that has a one-day concrete literal fulfillment to it? What does that look like that Paul can say, I press on, I pursue, I hunt after this thing with all of my life? When he knows that in Christ it's promised to him. So even as Chris talked about, we, we have this weird combination going on of we know we probably should be doing stuff now and yet we look forward to a much greater hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. The fact that Jesus will one day do away with the physical curse by giving us new redeemed bodies. And that he will one day do away with the spiritual ramifications of sin by perfecting us in Christ's likeness, restoring us truly and finally in fellowship and in the presence of God. And yet Paul is pursuing it right now. How does that work? You feel the tension? This tension drives us in how we understand our resolutions. Why would it be that Christians should resolve to do things? Why would it be that somebody who is perfect in Christ and has a future resurrection that we're waiting for should be striving in the present? Why should we care how we go about this sort of resolution thing? Let me go to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. Christ has a purpose for Paul in saving him. And it's not simply that he would be justified, that he would hop off the hamster wheel of self-righteousness and find that he is right before God based on Christ's righteousness. It is that he would actually become the perfection that is Christ. Romans 8, 28-29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's one of our favorite verses. What is it about? What's this good? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. What is this great good God is working? To be conformed to the image of his Son. What is this great good God works in all circumstances for his people? He is molding us into the image, the pattern of his Son. Why? Why would this be the goal? In order that Christ, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is 
the reason Christ has taken hold of his people. It is so that in taking hold, he is shaping us to be like him. It might seem obvious, and I'm glad it's obvious for many of you. That means we've been equipped. <laughs> but it's central. If we get this wrong, we miss the story of Scripture. Why does the resurrection matter? Because one day, there's going to be more than one born anew, truly and finally. There's going to be a bunch of perfected, Christ-like people. Christ's purpose in taking hold of your life through the gospel is that you would become like him. That's our purpose. That's our passion. That's what should drive us. That's what we should hunt. That's what should make 2023 either a year of success or failure. Has Christ conformed you more to the image of his Son? One day, finally, the resurrection will establish that perfection. But even now, and this is the hard part we need to get inside of our head, even now, day by day, we are experiencing the resurrection. We are experiencing a new life that is already, already ours. It's already our inheritance in Christ. He is already bringing new life to bear in us. We have yet to receive the physical effects of the resurrection, but now we are living out the spiritual effects of the resurrection. Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Just notice the language there. Old self. What does that mean? Pre-resurrection. New self. What does that mean? Post-resurrection. The new creation that we long for one day to be finalized is already here. This resurrection resolve that we're dealing with has an already not yet reality to it. We are now new creatures in Christ. Christ is bringing his resurrection life to bear in our life even now. He is making us like himself so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And it happens through us saying no to our old self and all those desires that come from false ways of thinking and say yes to the new ways of thinking in Christ and the new desires that come from it and be progressively transformed into Christ's likeness.
And so Paul can say here, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I hunt it. I pursue it. My life is devoted toward it. I go after it with every fiber of my being because it is what Christ saved me for. He took hold of me so that I could strive to take hold of this even as I long for the day when I will finally take hold of it. That's where we're at. That's why we can sit here and say, I'm going to resolve to grow this year. And it sharpens our focus. Where are we going to resolve to grow? Is it just in like our, our diets and our... Is it just in the ways that the world thinks we should be growing? Or do we have a Christ-oriented vision of what growth looks like? Where are you trying to get to in 2023? What defines where you're trying to get? Christ is making his people like himself. He is literally bringing to bear his resurrected life in our life now. We are looking at a new creation when we look at each other. The old is gone. The new has come. And so we should have a new set of priorities, a new set of aims. And they're just always being conformed to Christ. So I, I wonder, what, what makes you guys excited about 2023? What makes you excited about it? Maybe what makes you dread it? Do you dread that you might be just stuck on that hamster wheel? There's hope. Christ is making for himself a holy people, a people who are truly like him. If you're one of those, your future is secure. He is going to bring his new life in you and through you. And one day it will be perfected. Or... Are you excited about 2023? Because you're really excited to attain some new standard of living, some new way of being who you think you should be. There's a confrontation here. Let me just take you back to Paul's statement. In verse 10. That I may know him. Here's Paul's goal. That I may know Christ. And the power of his resurrection. That sounds nice. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Paul looked at his year ahead. And he saw the means to the greatest end. As suffering. And even death. That's not how the world looks at 2023 as a good year, is it? That's the only way we can see things like that as benefiting us is if the resurrection is really our goal. If Christ-likeness, Christ's character, Christ's heart, Christ's perfection being ours is our goal. We know that suffering produces character development, does it not? We know that death only leads to the resurrection. And I just want to challenge you through this verse, but through this whole section. If you get the right goal for 2023, you are set up to respond to the brokenness of your life in a whole new way. 
I, I enjoy cycling. I enjoy cross-country skiing. And physically, it's really hard right now because I'm struggling with the, the ramifications of the curse. I have some gut problems going on. And if racing, a really good race sometime in June, was my goal for 2023 as it is for a lot of my endurance athlete friends, that would be really discouraging. Right? If my life is about attaining these levels of self-discipline or attaining these great feats of strength or maybe you're an academic attaining grades or maybe you're looking for a job promotion, that sort of thing, then the ramifications of the fact that we are still in a broken world is going to only lead to discouragement and despair. But if we, like Paul, have Christ-like character, his new life shining through us, becoming who we truly are, becoming more fully the new creation that we are in him, if that's our goal, we can walk with Paul through suffering. We can face death and all of its ramifications and iterations in our world. We can face the brokenness of our life, knowing that there's something more enduring, more beautiful, something much more powerful that we are promised. Knowing that 2023 will bring us to a greater height of something much more meaningful. And that is experiencing the new life we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I don't want to act callous toward how hard it is to suffer, how hard it is to live in a broken world, how hard it is to have hopes and dreams that may seem like they're getting dashed. But I want us, as Christ wants us, to feel the greater, surpassing worth of knowing you and the power of your resurrection. So that it puts the rest of this broken world into perspective and helps us become, this year, the new creation that will one day be ours in full. Pray that you will help shape our perspective. That you will cause us to have a holy desire that causes us to be distinct from the world, even as we live in the midst of it. That people would see that we have priorities that can't be touched by suffering. They can't be touched by thwarted plans and desires that go unmet. We have the promise that you took hold of us to bring us to perfection, to bring us to resurrection, to bring us to conformity to yourself. And so we can rejoice. I pray that you'd help us to do that. In your name, amen.